Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, I think the press makes me more uncivil than I am. But in those rooms, you have cameras in the strangest places. I was a nice student. I did very well. Uh, I'm a very intelligent person. You better be careful or you'll be watching yourself on nightly television. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man Senate Republicans love but only on the record. Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So the president is crowing, and not just because he got a standing ovation from people who are afraid of him. He's crowing about the revelation that Democratic money paid for the dossier. That's the file of raw intelligence reporting that first surfaced accusations of collusion between Trump's campaign and the Kremlin. BuzzFeed bravely published it earlier this year. Let's admit that the optics here aren't great. Trump has his talking point that the dossier was paid for by Hillary Clinton people. He can dismiss it as political propaganda. But does it matter who paid for the dossier? Trump's Republican opponents were just as keen as Hillary Clinton was to find out the truth about his cordial relations with the Kremlin. What matters is what's true. Was Trump, is Trump, in effect, being blackmailed by Putin? Did his campaign coordinate with Russia to swing the election? Christopher Steele, the British former spy who wrote the report, wasn't a partisan and didn't care who was paying him. He was worried enough about what he found out to go to the FBI with it and not just back to the intermediary that paid him. Virginia Heffernan brought the dossier story up to date last week when she spoke to Natasha Bertrand of Business Insider. Today, I want to go a little deeper into the historical context of the Trump-Russia scandal with one of the people who first alerted me to it in the spring of 2016. I'll be back to talk about it with the writer Ann Applebaum right after this message. I'd like to welcome back to the program the historian and journalist Ann Applebaum, Her new book just published is Red Famine, and it's about Stalin's war on Ukraine. Anne, hello. Hi, Jacob. Um, So you've I've just started your book. It's it's completely fascinating. You've been working on this subject of Ukraine for years, and you probably thought you were doing a work of pure history. But suddenly Ukraine's like at the center of American political scandal. 
Did you see that yeah, coming? So it, was, it was a very odd experience writing the book. And as you say, the initial idea was that it was something fairly obscure, and then it suddenly wasn't. I mean, it's, you know, obscure only in the sense that one of the great crimes of the 20th century, which we are almost 100 years later finding out new things about. I mean, I want I, I don't want to short shrift this book because it's so important and interesting in its own right. What's something that people misunderstand and don't know about the famine Stalin created in the Ukraine. In so Ukraine, famine, we would we should say, sorry. Yeah, Ukraine. Um, the famine was, there was a broader Soviet famine that took place in 1931 and 32 as a result of his collectivization policy. This is when he kicked the peasants off their farms and made them join state farms, and that created chaos and food shortages. What most people don't know is that there was also a kind of famine within the famine, and that Stalin used this moment of chaos to target Ukraine and to to remove food from people's houses. It wasn't a famine that was caused by drought or bad weather. It was caused by teams of activists who went from house to house and literally took people's food out. Um, and they then blocked the, the roads around Ukraine. They blocked the roads between uh, villages and cities. They didn't let anybody leave the republic. And that meant that people starved I mean, they, you know, without any access to food. Um, so it was a deliberate attempt to weaken the peasantry, and it also happened at the same time as there was this massive attack on the Ukrainian intellectual class, so the writers and artists and even Ukrainian Communist Party leaders um, who, who Stalin wanted to get rid of. And the, the point of it was to weaken Ukraine so that it wouldn't challenge the um, the superiority of Bolshevism, so it wouldn't be a problem for Moscow. Um, and of course, there is a, there's a kind of echo of that in, in Putin's fear of Ukraine today. That's what I was going to ask you. I mean, minus the Bolshevism part, when when Putin goes to war in Ukraine and seizes the eastern Crimea, I mean, it's the context in Russia is the context that's felt there, what Lenin and Stalin did in Ukraine. And in Ukraine, is that the context for understanding it? So it's, it is different. And this is a new situation. But there is a way in which Putin sees the you know, anything that happens in Kiev is a, is a, as a, it's not just something happening in a faraway place or a different country. It's something that he's as a kind of existential threat to himself. And when he saw in 2014 young people waving EU flags and calling for democracy and rule of law in Kiev, he thought, well, you know, this is a threat to me. And of course, a Ukraine that was European and was even remotely normal and democratic and integrated and so on, that would be a big challenge for his form of autocratic oligarchy. Because, um, you know, if, if, you know, if Ukrainians can do it with their close links to Russia and their cultural similarities, then why not Russians? And Russians might say, well, how come they could do it and not us? And so I think it's a Ukraine presented a kind of ideological challenge to Putin, and that was why he really overreacted both by the annexation of Crimea and then also this pointless war in eastern Ukraine. That's a somewhat different uh, analysis from the idea that he's just asserting dominance over what he sees as the Russian sphere of influence or reconstructing the Russian or Soviet empire in some way. So, I, I mean, I mean, no, I think he certainly sees an ideological challenge. I mean, there is an element of imperialism as well. Um, the Russians have trouble seeing Ukraine as a foreign country, although, you know, they become more and more used to that with every passing year. And I think Putin, when he originally invaded Ukraine, he thought that eastern Ukraine would kind of fall into his lap because it's, it's Russian speaking. And so he thought, well, they're Russians. And so when, if we just 
send some, you know, some guys in there, they'll immediately be so happy they'll just want to join us. And that actually didn't happen because Ukraine is actually a bilingual country and there are Russian-speaking Ukrainians and Ukrainian-speaking Ukrainians. And he didn't, he, he misunderstood that about it. Um, and, you know, he imagined that anybody who spoke Russian was a Russian and wanted to be part of his country. And that's turned out not to be true. So Donald Trump decides to run for president and he thinks, who should I get to run my campaign? And he says, I know, I'll get the guy who worked for the Russian stooge who was running Ukraine before the Orange Revolution, <laughs> Paul Manafort. I mean, how did this how did this happen? I mean, of the of the, you know, terrible things American political consultants sometimes do abroad. This is a pretty close to one extreme of outrageousness. Yes. So, you know, I have to tell you, when Manafort was appointed, I I had this kind of jaw drop moment when I thought, you know, oh, my God, we're going to have Ukrainian politics in the United States, because what Manafort did in Kiev, which, by the way, he was a very famous person. He lived there for many years. He had an apartment there. He was very well known there. He had a whole team of people working for him there. So, you know, it's not just it wasn't just another country for him or another interest. And I know he's had a lot of actually pretty sleazy interests and contacts all over the world, but he has this long-standing involvement with the pro-Russian groups in Ukraine who were trying to to sort of Russify and also sort of authoritarianize the Ukrainians. And so when I saw that Trump had chosen him, I, you know, it was this, this stunning moment in, in, in the U.S. Um, political campaign where I suddenly thought, oh no, my obscure knowledge of Ukrainian politics is suddenly going to come into handy, and um, it did. I mean, um, many of the Trump's tactics, many of the things he did during the election, look to me like things that Ukrainian politicians do. I mean, those big sort of violent rallies with the use of sort of plainclothes thugs threatening people. That's a, you know, that's a well-known, we know that tactic from Ukraine. Um, the use of massive social media disinformation campaigns, we know that from Ukraine. You know, lots of these things that he was doing looked familiar to me. I, mean, I don't know to what extent Manafort was responsible for all of it. But certainly, I mean, the choice of him at that moment after his long involvement with Russians and sort of the, the, the Russian, the, the, the Russians who tried to promote, you know, the pro-Russian president in Ukraine, you know, that it couldn't have been, um, you know, it couldn't have been neutral. That's interesting. Whatever we end up finding out about collusion, Manafort was clearly a vector for some of the, some of this oh, Russian yeah, Man- politics I mean, Man- coming to coming to our country. Yeah, I mean, Man- Manafort, you know, it's not even a, I mean, collusion is, I mean, it looks like he was still being paid by Russian clients while he was working for Trump. You know, Trump made a big thing about how he's not, you know, Manafort's not working for a salary. Well, believe me, he was getting a salary from somebody. Yeah. Um, if he wasn't getting it from Trump. Um, and he doesn't seem to have left off any of his contacts. He was in touch with them. I mean, the there was this famous incident at the Republican National Convention when the Republican platform was changed to modify the language on Ukraine, and everybody was very mystified by it. And that, my guess at the time was that, and you know, was that that was Manafort wanting to show somebody in Moscow, look, I have control over this. I can, I can influence the Republican Party, and that he would do because he still had these ongoing client relationships in Russia. And he wanted to prove, look how influenced I am now in the United States. I mean, how influential I am. So that he could deliver on the Republican platform. He could deliver yeah. at the Republican convention, yeah. We have so many threads with the Russia story, and it's hard to know which one to think is the most important one to pull. I mean, there's the Manafort thread. There's the Flynn thread. 
there is all the stuff around the Trump Tower meeting and the Magnitsky Act. There are all the questions about Russian business interests, Trump trying to build hotels or buildings in Moscow and investors here or buyers of his apartments here. I mean, what's your what's your hunch or what do you think is the is the kind of hottest poker in this fire right now? I mean, I, so I think the fact that there are so many of these things is not an accident. Um, you know, Trump's longstanding connections to Russia, his longstanding admiration for Putin meant that, you know, as he was running for president, lots of different groups in Russia probably got very excited and thought, right, this is our opportunity both to get in with, you know, with maybe the next U.S. president or at least with influential people to shape his campaign, you know, to, to make contacts for him. And you know, my guess is that there were actually more than one set of interests in Russia uh, approaching him. I think the Veselnitskaya thing, this is the lawyer who met with Kushner and Manafort um, before the election. And Trump she, Jr., yeah. And Trump Jr. She was probably representing one set of Russian oligarchs who are angry about these this one particular set of sanctions, the Magnitsky sanctions. Um, there may have been others who were, you know, who were pursuing other lines. There, were, there seemed to have been multiple attempts to get through to Trump and to reach him, even from, as we know, the Russian ambassador. I mean, we, we've now forgotten this story. This was earlier on that, you know, that Kushner was meeting with him, that Flynn was meeting with him in a way that no previous election campaign has ever done in a way that wasn't normal for campaigns. Asking so, for a private communications channel with the Kremlin, invisible for, to the FBI. Yeah, that was a little unusual. No, that was very, you know, so we have that. We have Veselnitskaya. We have the, um, as you say, Manafort. I mean, there seem to be multiple, you know, and, and I'm not sure that any one of them is more important than any other. I mean, I think they're part of a you know, multiple contacts, some cases going back many years, but as I said, representing different Russian interests, wanting to be in touch with Trump and seeing him as a solution. I mean, I think they saw him as a, some, solving several of their problems. One of them was the problem with sanctions. Do they really hate the sanctions? Remember that our sanctions on Russia are on particular people and companies. These are not you know, wide-scale sanctions. They don't attach whole. They're not. They're not attacking industries. They don't attack the whole country. They're about specific people, and so that means that there's specific people who have an, an interest in lifting them. And these are people who are mostly very close to the Russian president. So, generally speaking, they they like dealing with people who seem similar to themselves and who seem and Trump's. Um, you know, his whole his thing about wanting to be somebody who mixes political and economic influence, you know, who uses wealth to gain power and then power to gain wealth. I mean, he's an oligarch. Kind of he's an oligarch. He's, he's totally, an oligarch. Yeah. I mean, this I wrote this column, you know, he's a Russian oligarch. He's a he acts like they do. He has the same taste they have. You know, he, <laughs> he lives in the same kind of buildings they live in. You know, his the women in his family dress like the women in, in their families. I mean, it's very similar. You know, and so they feel comfortable with him. He looks like them, and he seems to—he must seem to them corrupt in the same ways that they're corrupt. And, you know, yeah, of course they mix business interests and political interests. That's what we do. And you know, we in America that all seems new. We haven't had that in a president before, at least not in in recent memory. So talk about um, Bill Browder and the Magnitsky Act for a minute. But Browder um, has become, you know, become a full time human rights activist. He got Canada to pass a version of the Magnitsky Act, and Putin retaliated by putting him again on this Interpol list where you can be arrested at any border. And amazingly, a country like Russia can unilaterally put someone on this list and that then requires a huge diplomatic effort to get them off. So he couldn't, Bill Browder, couldn't come to the United States for some period of time 
based on this this retaliation. I mean, what's going? What's is there? Is there any more so, story there than what meets so the, the eye? The, the big story with Browder is he drives them crazy. I mean, I don't know that you know. As I said, you're, you're right that he, Russia tries periodically to put him on this list of suspected criminals. Um, and that means that he could theoretically be arrested at any border, and then he goes, he makes efforts to get off of it. I mean, I don't know that there is a, I don't think that the Trump administration bears any particular responsibility for the fact that they chose to do this now. Um, it's just interesting that it's an ongoing element of of the story. Putin actions actually spoke about Browder a few days ago by name. And, you know, his animus towards him is obviously real. And and it seems to be, you know, what they really hate are these specific personal sanctions on individual people. And that means that those people can't travel in the West. They can't go and visit their houses in the south of France. They can't go skiing in the Alps. They can't visit their children who are studying at, you know, American and British universities. And they really, really don't like these, these kinds of sanctions. Um, and they've sought very hard to have them lifted. And so I think that's the you know, I think I think it shows how frustrated they are by our policy, which I think actually means that it's working. Like you, Browder is a friend of Trump. He's been on the program several times and was an early alarm sounder on Russian intervention. I'm worried about him. I mean, Putin, he lives in London, but, you know, Putin's enemies have this tendency to, to turn up dead. I mean, he, there's, there's some line between brave and foolhardy. I mean, I'm sure he has security, but is he at serious risk right now? Look, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel that often, you know, Putin's enemies disappear because of this, you know, Putin, they're often trying to please him. Um, you know, on the, it's sort of like the, the famous you know, um, who, will no one rid me of this troublesome priest, yeah. you know, the, which was then interpreted as a reason to kill Thomas Beckett. Um, and, and so, the, you know, he will, you know, he might say vaguely, I dislike so-and-so, and then people seem to emerge from the shadows to fill out, you know, to fulfill those orders. And it's true, there are all kinds, there are all kinds of people other than Putin who might not like Browder. I mean, you know, Browder may be saved by the fact that he's so prominent and that, you know, something happened to him there would be no question about who it was or why, and that would cause, you know, yet another international scandal. So, I mean, in some ways, he's better off than somebody like um, Litvinenko, who was this ex-Russian security officer who was murdered by radiation poisoning by some by some Russian security agents um, in London a few years ago. You know, he was just slightly less well-known. He's famous because of the gruesome way in which he was killed. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he was famous because, I mean, li- I mean, literally some guys came from Moscow to London carrying a form of radiation, which they put in his tea and gave it to him. And then, of course, they seem to have been, it's not even clear they really understood what kind of poison they were giving him. But if one of the things about radiation is that you can trace it. And they left traces of it all over everywhere they'd went, including on the planes they'd flown on. So um, it wasn't very hard to figure out what had happened once once the British intelligence services figured out what it was. Let me pull one more thread here, Anne, which is about the dossier. There was news that broke yesterday that Democrats in the campaign paid to have that research done, although it was indirect. I don't know if Christopher Steele knew where the money came from, Christopher Steele being the the British spy who assembled that raw intelligence report. Does that Should that affect anything? I was just talking to Mike Pesca about this on his program. So I kind of mystified by the story because that's where that's who I thought paid for it the whole time. I don't I, think we knew that or we certainly didn't know the detail about it. In fact, there had been a story that 
that a Republican rival of Trump's had at least at the beginning paid for the My, my understanding was that it started as a Republican rival and then it was passed to the Democrats. That may, that may in fact be what happened. But what we now know, I think, is that at least the bulk of it or over some period of time, it was paid for by Democrats allied with I Hillary genuinely, Clinton. I genuinely, I'm sort of really mystified by this. First of all, that's what I thought had happened <laughs> anyway. And so... Well, you have a very good nose for this, but I'm not sure we knew all that we knew everything we know now. But I also don't see why it makes us any difference. I mean, the, the point about the dossier um, was that the reason it was so alarming and why it alarmed um, Steele himself and then also the FBI was because um, it had corroboration from other European intelligence services, some of whom were coming across the same stories, and they seemed to have been passing that along as well. So it was it had a number of echoes. I mean, so it, it was... I mean, I'm not sure it really matters who paid for it. I mean, the, the point was is that the material, you know, Steele's own credibility was such, plus there were other people saying more or less the same thing. And I think those things together made the FBI interested in it. So I don't understand really why that should... I mean, Steele wasn't working for British intelligence at the time. He was working for this private company that does carries out investigations for money. So I'm not sure I understand why it's a big story, who was paying for it. Just as a last question, and this is something else I know you're, you're tracking very closely, how mad should we be at Facebook? How, how much was Facebook co-opted and used during the election, and how good a job has it done since about becoming transparent about what happened and cleaning up its act? So, I mean, first of all, Facebook isn't alone, and I think there's more to learn about Google and about Twitter and about other forms of social media you know, that the Russians have been experimenting with different ways to use social media in order to cause, you know, different kinds of psychological effects is something we've known for a long time. Um, there was a really good article a year or two ago in the New York Times Magazine that described this Russian troll farm, um, St. Petersburg troll farm, which is now, which seems to have been responsible for some of the campaign stuff, which described how they had um, faked a chemical attack. In other words, they they had fake Twitters, fake tweets, and fake video, and fake news um, news bulletins about a chemical attack in Louisiana. Sorry, not a chemical attack. Excuse me, a chemical explosion. An accident. Yeah. An accident in Louisiana, and they seem to have. And they suddenly put all this stuff online, seemingly as a kind of experiment to find out, you know, could they make people anxious even when nothing had happened. You know, I didn't have the information that we have now, but again, I had, a, you know, when I was watching social media during the U.S. election campaign, a lot of it looked to me, you know, these hysterical conspiracy theories. You know, some of it was American, but gosh, it looked a lot like the way Russians run election campaigns. And my thought at the time, which may or may not have been correct, was that maybe this is what Manafort is doing. I mean, you, you, can, you can buy trolls. Trolls are a thing you can buy from PR companies or bots, rather, yeah. um, you can you can import them. You know, it doesn't really matter where they come from. You can you can program them to do certain things, and they can sell have... toothpaste, or they can be weaponized against democracy. Same price, exactly. And and he and he may have. And my thought was, well, maybe he was getting them from Russia, which would have, would have made sense since um, that's what that is how they were being used in, you know, in Eastern Europe. Um, my my feeling is that fa that all these companies have been quite naive about the politicization of the internet and a lot of them had believed the you know the sort of naive you know descriptions of the internet that may, many people were making a few years ago it's all about democracy and bringing people together and so on and the idea that it might be used for the opposite was something they didn't want to hear 
also, you know, an important point is that they, this is how they make money. I mean, they were making money from ads. They make money from political ads. They make money from the use of their platforms. They aren't media companies who feel some responsibility for their content or who are, who are held legally responsible for their content. I mean, why don't truth and advertising laws apply to the internet ads? You know, why don't campaign advertising laws apply to internet ads? I mean, it's just mysterious to me. I mean, I'm not even sure we need a, to invent whole new categories of, you know, of regulation if we just applied normal things. But anyway, nobody, nobody was thinking along those lines and those companies certainly weren't. And so I think we're really just at the beginning of picking apart I mean, first of all, how the Russians used it and then how others are going to use it. I mean, I said this to somebody today who was, you know, more sympathetic towards Trump. And I said, you know, look, OK, you you may be happy enough that, you know, the Russians, OK, the Russians found ways to help the Republicans in the last election campaign. Well, what if the Chinese decide to help the Democrats in the next election campaign? Are you going to be happy about that? The point is that these are methods that are now available to anybody and also lots of Americans. And so understanding how they work and how foreign countries and domestic groups might try to use them um, is really key to making sure that our electoral process and also that, you know, just our national conversation is um, is you know, returns to some form of normality. I've been speaking to the historian and journalist Anne Applebaum. Her new book is Red Famine. Anne, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jacob. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. John Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. You know that. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.